Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaikum, Omar. How are you? Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I'm doing fine, man. How are you doing? I'm good, alhamdulillah. I'm good. So today we're talking about Islamic Cairo. How do you feel about that? Uh, well, it's something that uh, is very dear to me, and I've been exploring it since about a year and a half now. And I'm still, I I've, I've still have a a very long way to go to get through it. So uh, it's one of okay. my favorite topics. Okay, so what I'm thinking today is we're going to do a few things. We'll cover some of the Islamic history behind the different dynasties of of Egypt and, I guess, Cairo, which I think people don't really know much about. And then we'll go through some of the... So I guess some of the things you see and do in Islamic Cairo. So let's let's kick off with about you. So how long have you lived in, in Cairo? Uh, I've lived in Cairo on and off. For about four years, and, okay. But throughout my life, I've lived in Cairo on and off, and I've had to travel okay. for work and come back. Okay. And you've been exploring Islamic Cairo the, only since about a year and a half. Okay. And so the reason I say Islamic Cairo or old Cairo, or some people will say medieval Cairo, is because the original, I guess, city of Cairo is expanded now. So when people go to Cairo, they may see the new city. They may see the British, the French culture, they may see, you know, the different parts of it. But we're focusing today on Islamic Cairo or Old Cairo. So, That's right. So what happened was I came to see you a couple of weeks ago and we've been talking about, I guess, not not really doing collaboration, but just doing things, doing the two things we love together, which is one is photograph and, and second one is to explore, I guess, Islamic architecture and mosques in particular that is something that we both have in common and we've spoken on and off um, for a while so I said to you a few weeks ago I'm thinking about coming to Cairo and you said to me just come and I booked my ticket the same day and I came and we spent three full days in Cairo and we saw so much that I can't I can't really summarize even even if I try to Typically, when I go to a place, you see maybe five, ten mosques. I think we saw, what, 46 mosques in three days? Yeah, that's right. And about and 28 mausoleums. Wow, okay. And we saw some sibyls. Yeah, and countless homes that you just pass by. And, they're and you don't even know. Right. They're all around you, yeah. So, um, this is more for qualifiers, so, so people know... That we we've done our research we've 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 seen a lot and this is only in three days with me but of course on your own you've seen a lot more so Cairo is not that old if you compare it to something like Shams or if you compare it to maybe even I guess Persia and you go to, into into India Cairo really is only about a thousand years old is that right? That's right, Cairo itself yes. And of course, in Egypt is much older, and then the Arabs came much before. So let's kick off with the very first dynasty. Actually, let me list all the ones we'll cover. This way, people can can uh, can track. Okay, so we'll cover cover the Fatimid dynasty. We'll cover the Ayyubid, and then we'll cover the Mamluk, and then the Ottoman, and then the I guess the French, the Napoleon uh, rule, and then the British, and then finally the Muhammad Ali Pasha dynasty, and then we'll come on to things are like today so let's let's kick off into how Islam came into into Cairo or how Cairo was founded okay well um, maybe we could backtrack just a little bit 
uh, to the to how Islam came to Cairo, just like you were saying, and it came with uh, Amr ibn al-As, and he was actually the one who founded the city of Fustat, and he founded it close to the ancient centers. Uh, it wasn't so far from the Byzantine fortress of Babylon, and uh, Egypt would remain a province under uh, the Rashidun era, and then in the Umayyad era, and then the Abbasid era as well. So. Egypt would remain a province of the Islamic Caliphate for about 237 years or so. Okay, and okay. At, at this time, all the advancement in the sciences and the arts, architecture, it was taking place in the Levant uh, under the Umayyads because that was their center, or later in Baghdad under the Abbasids. But Egypt was just a, more like a breadbasket for the Caliphate. So then who, so who are the Fatimids and how, what happened with those guys? Okay, so the Fatimids were Ismaili Shia Arabs, and they claimed the descent from Fatima al-Zahra. Um, and it was actually through a Shia imam, his, his name was uh, Ismail ibn Jafar. But the, the thing is that the Fatimids, well, the Shia Arabs, they didn't acknowledge the Sunni caliphate of the Abbasids. They didn't see it as being legitimate. And so the Abbasids saw that as a challenge to their power. So they persecuted them. And they also had the problem with the, the Shia teachings. So there wasn't much compatibility between the Abbasids and the Shia during that time. So the, so the Ismailis fled, first to Iran, then to Syria, and then to Tunisia, where they founded the, the, the Fatimid movement. So the Fatimid movement had its roots there, and it would gain momentum. It would rally the tribes, and then under... Abdullah al-Mahdi billah, it would establish the, the dynasty of the Fatimids. Uh, when al-Mu'izz became caliph of the uh, Fatimid caliphate, he, he first uh, was based in, in Tunisia at that time still, but he looked east to Egypt, and then he, he captured it with the help of his Sicilian general, his name was uh, Jawhara al-Saqilli, and so the it was the first time the Fatimids would triumph over the Abbasids, and they would uh, it would be a major victory, and they would establish the city of Cairo. They would call it the Victorious or the Vanquisher. So Al Qaeda, meaning the Victorious. Yeah. So okay, so this you just said Sicilian. So so Sicily itself was under I guess Shia rule for a small amount of time, right? That's right. That's right. And okay, and. You mentioned Abbasids, so just this is a separate topic. But Abbasids are considered, if you like, they consider one of the, I guess, the most brilliant Islamic civilizations. The, the golden age of Islam really flourished under them in Baghdad. You had the House of Wisdom, and then the Fatimids came along and they established their own strong foothold in North Africa, and Cairo became mm -hmm. their foundation. Okay. That's right. Yeah, but Cairo was first built as a walled city, so. It was just yep. made for the caliph's palace and the institutions of the government. It also had uh, the Azhar, one of the world's first universities. And so it, it was not really for the people. So the Fatimids essentially were the counterpower, or they wanted to be their own, the voice of, the, I guess, the, the Shia community. And one thing that people may not know is when you... Actually, each time I've gone to Cairo, I always go to the mosque 
of Al-Azhar, which I think is located close to, now there's many campuses, but the University of Al-Azhar, which is, is either the or the second oldest university in the world, which 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 is a huge title because this is not just in the Muslim world, this is this is universally speaking, this is in the world. And Al-Azhar, as some people may say, was they only taught religious sciences, it's just a madrasa, it wasn't just a madrasa, they taught material sciences, they taught sociology, they taught economics, they taught astronomy, they covered they covered the entire depth of if you like of, of the known learning spectrum. And this continues till today. And I, thought, I think now, I think the focus is much more on it as a madrasa. But the Fatimids, let's just summarize that, a Shia dynasty established Al-Azhar University. And the oldest university, I guess, after that is, as some people say, is the University of um, Al-Karawain in, in Fez in Morocco. Okay, so moving on from the Fatimids, um, they didn't stay in power too long. Then came the Ayyubids. Now, this was, uh, they were short but sweet dynasty, and it's one of my favorites because they change, if you like, the entire course of of the region of for for the Muslims in a way because they were Sunni dynasty, and there was one man who changed the face of Cairo and Egypt. Who's that guy? Right. It's Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, and. We, we have to look at the last days of the Fatimids to understand how he came in uh, to become so influential in Egypt. So during the last years of the Fatimid Caliphate, it was becoming very weak and it was ruled by uh, a succession of a few young caliphs. And under their reigns, the Fatimids would lose their lands gradually to just left and right to some tribes in the West or uh, the rising Seljuk Empire and also the later the, the Crusades would take uh, parts of the Levant as well so we see the Fatimid Caliphate weakening and shrinking from every side and they would become so desperate that they would even seek an alliance with the Crusades but this alliance would be blocked by the Seljuks uh, who invaded Egypt and then appointed Salahuddin as its vizier so here we see Salahuddin start to maneuver to undermine the Fatimid establishment because he sees that it's weakening and um, that there's a threat from the Crusades. So he needs to set up something different. So upon the death of the, the last uh, Fatimid Caliph, Salahuddin abolishes the Fatimid uh, dynasty and he then looks at the threat that Egypt is facing, which is that posed by the Crusades. So he sets out a defensive strategy. He builds the citadel on top of the hills which overlook all of Cairo's main cities, and he builds a wall around all of Cairo's cities, Al-Fustat, Al-Askar, Al-Qata'a, and Cairo. And then there's not, there's not everything, as he say, because he puts the country back to the path of Sunni Islam. So he also had a religious agenda. He shut down the Shia institutions. He built more Sunni institutions, uh, again, to put Egypt back on track uh, to, uh, of Sunni Islam. And then in the end, he aligns Egypt once again with the Abbasid Caliphate, but it would remain an autonomous region. And then he would uh, go off to Syria, defeat the Crusades, and 
it would actually be his final resting place. So this is it in a nutshell. Okay, so that's that's amazing. Every time every time Salahuddin's name comes up, I get goosebumps. Only you know he's if if you look at if you look at him as a military commander, but he was more than that. There's two people that come to mind: is Khalid ibn Walid and Salahuddin, and and there's no there's no challenge to their to their history what they've achieved, but people think Salahuddin was only famous I guess only known for what he did in Jerusalem, and this was a dream I guess of the Seljuks. This was a dream of the Muslims at the time. They weren't able to do it, but he did it, and and that. I guess put his name in the history books, and his name became famous throughout Europe because of his, because I guess I guess because of his humility, also because of the way he treated, or how he acted in in victory, right. and um, and what he left behind in his name. So so he was part of the Ayyubids. They established um, Sunni Islam in in Cairo mm-hmm. in Egypt, and he didn't leave much behind after that. They were short-lived dynasty, but. You said he promoted Sunni Islam. I've got a question. So when we were in Cairo and we were seeing, I guess they're known as a Hanka or Hanqas. Yes. These are these are Sunni Sufi. I guess I guess I guess places of um, Dekar are these places where they promoted a particular type of doctrine, Sunni doctrine. So were these Hankas set up all over Cairo to promote a, a new doctrine of Sunni Islam, or is this? Am I confusing no, something right. with that's, something else? That's quite accurate, actually. The Hanqaz is a place where the Sufi students used to study. And they would have a teacher, and they would study under his mentorship. And they would live and uh, stay there. They would eat there and drink there. So it would be just a place for religious worship. And these students would come, they would learn, and then... They would spread these teachings uh, throughout society when they once they go back. So the Khanqas served as centers for uh, Sunni Islam, where Sunni Islam could spread from these centers throughout the city, and they were a way of countering the Shia uh, influence that was that had built up throughout the past two centuries under the Fatimids. After the Ubids came the Mamluks, right. and and when I came to Cairo and you were teaching me about Mamluks, you you categorized them in two periods as the early Mamluks and then the late Mamluks. So so why don't you tell me A who the early Mamluks were and then who the late Mamluks were and why you'd categorize them as such? Okay. Um, I think we could also go a little bit into how the Mamluks came to power because there were the Ayyubids and they they were a short-lived dynasty so we're not going to go into that so much but then towards the end their last Sultan his name was Najmuddin al-Ayyubi he had a little bit of a trust issue with the people around him so he began importing uh, unusually large amounts of Mamluks from Central Asia so who's a Mamluk let's define let's define that so okay that's a very good question the Mamluks were slave soldiers uh, of either Turkish or Circassian origin. And they were brought to Egypt at a very young age. And they were actually ordered to forget their homeland. So forget everything about your homeland. Egypt is now your new homeland. But they were also not slaves in the conventional sense. So they were given a, a very good religious education, the best military training, 
they were the, they would wear the same clothes and eat the same food as their masters. And after all this intensive training uh, and their religious education, of course, they were granted their freedom, but they were required to serve their masters and be loyal to them. Wow. So okay. basically, that's yeah, so. That's so non-Arabs. So these are non-Arabs who are coming into the heart of, I guess, the Arab world, and they're serving. Right. And I guess the whole concept was they don't have any alliance or allegiance to anyone, so you could trust exactly. them. Um, given given how dynasties work, the the concern was your sibling, your cousins, your uncles. They could they could stab you and and, and become ruler. So the Mamluk's yeah. concept was you bring someone with no um, no alliance, their alliance is only to, to those who, I guess, given them that opportunity. And, and the thing with the Mamluks is they, were, they weren't just kept as slave soldiers or warriors. They could rise to really high ranks, right? So this, this and this was proven in history. Okay, so those are the Mamluks. Okay, so let's go into the early Mamluk period. Um, who's worth mentioning from that period? The Mamluk Sultan Qutuz. And to me, he, he's the first Mamluk Sultan, because he was the the one who fought the the threat of the Mongols. He was the one who put it down. So what happened was, the Mongols had swept through Persia, Iraq, and the Levant, and then they threatened Egypt, and Egypt was the last stronghold of Islam at the time. So Qutuz, he assembled all the Mamluks, and he formed an alliance with one of the Mamluks Babers in Syria and they head off to Ain Jalut which it's not too far off from Jerusalem and that's where they fought and defeated the Mongols and it was the first defeat for the Mongols but it was such a decisive one um, that it, it helped the Mamluks establish their state their sultanate so it's a very important victory and it, it would be the one that would allow the Mamluk Sultanate later on to unite Egypt and Syria and the Hejaz and and form the Mamluk Sultanate. So the Mongols, this is this is the reason I, I absolutely love the Mamluks because I, I view them in a few different ways. I view them as one as slaves became kings and it's, it's absolutely true, it's factual, but it's also true in, in other ways, just the way they, I guess, came from a non-Muslim land, from a non, I guess, traditionally Arab background, and they became, they became the warrior and the king, and they stopped the Mongols. And and for people who don't know, the Mongol invasion was, was probably, the worst, I guess, if you can call it that, tragedy or, um, um, to hit the Muslim world. They, as you said, they came from the east, whilst the Muslims were looking to the west, to the Crusaders. And they were doing pretty well defeating the Crusaders. No one expected to, the Mongols to come from the east, and they destroyed everybody on the way. Um, and the plan essentially was, I think if I remember correctly, when they spoke to the Mamluks, they said, you are our only enemy in sight and we're coming for you. So the Mongols really had the idea to go all the way to the Maghrib. They would have kept going. They would have gone through Tunisia. They would have gone into Morocco. And they literally would have restarted from China and it the Muslim rule to the West, which is as far as Islam went. So the Mamluks ended that, and you said it was the first defeat for the Mongols, and I think it was the first, and it would be the beginning for unwinding the entire Mongol um, in force 
before they would wind back and I think some would stay back in, in, in Shams and right. reverse and go back into Persia and stay and become become Muslims, start their own dynasties, which itself is just so spectacular if you think about that. People don't talk mm -hmm. about this, but they just say, you know, Genghis Khan and and then his lineage and they just ended Islam, the golden age, which they did. But what people don't talk about is these Mongols who are considered the most barbaric in the history of human human history, they became Muslim. They they saw something so magnificent and they couldn't they couldn't stay away from it. But the Mamluks were the ones who ended that um, that invasion. Okay, sweet. Okay, so on to the late Mamluks. Right. So now at this point, um, it looks like to me the Mamluks have established themselves. Okay. They've made each of their own. Cairo is now their city. They've developed all the establishments, all the religious places, and now it's their city. So what happens with the late Mamluks? What should we know about these guys? Okay, we should know that the later Mamluk era was more unstable. So the first one, uh, the first one had the, the dynasty of Qalawun who could rule, who ruled for about a hundred years or so, give or take. And the, the second one was more abrupt. It had a lot of internal turmoil. The taxation was higher on the people. There were a lot of famines, a lot of plagues. And of course you had the Ottoman Empire expanding. So um, it even reached that at one point the, the power struggle was so intense that there was a succession of four sultans over only seven years. But then a fifth sultan came and his name was Qayyid Bey, Al-Ashraf Qayyid Bey. And he actually was reluctant to become sultan, but he accepted uh, because he wanted to bring stability to the Mamluk Sultanate. So he's, he's our person of interest in this late Mamluk era. He, he also wanted, to, uh, in, in trying to bring stability, he had to deal with the Mamluk rebellions because there were a lot of factions at that time. Um, there were outbreaks, several outbreaks of plagues, I think four during his reign alone. Um, the Ottomans, as I said, they were nearing, and so he had to deal with them. But in his 29-year reign, he managed to maintain stability. And he managed to keep every, uh, every one of these uh, potential catastrophes at bay. So he maintained a stability throughout the Mamluk Sultanate, and he was he was the beacon of of this stability, just him. And this stability brought about a golden era of architecture and the arts. And during his reign, I read once that uh, there were about two hundred over two hundred and thirty. Uh, monuments that were built throughout Egypt and Syria, so, and and also Mecca, Medina, and the Hejaz. So, you can really see that he was a very influential and also just ruler because you don't achieve this through tyranny or oppression. You achieve it through balance. Perfect. Okay, so that's the late Mamluks. As brilliant as they were, and as achieved as they were in in Cairo, in Egypt. They were no match, I guess, by that time for the Ottomans, who had become a superpower in their own right. So, and in my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, the Ottomans just had superior firepower. They had, they had technology, 
which which um, looks in the in, in, I guess you can call it call it an ancient way of um, um, battle could not keep up, and the Ottomans just just defeated and became right. the rulers of Egypt. Well, the, there's just one more thing to add was that some of the Mamluks sold out the Sultan and and turned uh, on Egypt. They allied they allied with the Ottomans against Egypt. So there was a little bit of not a, not a little bit, but there was betrayal, which resulted in this Ottoman takeover of Egypt. Well, it wouldn't have been so swift, is what I'm saying. If we just summarize the Mamluks, the Mamluks were in power for about 300 years, from the 13th to the um, I guess 16th century, and then the Mam and then the Ottomans had similar amount of time in power. Um, but the Ottoman, the Ottoman legacy in Egypt really isn't something people think about or look at, um, because they they ruled the Hejaz, they ruled they ruled so much of the Middle East that we only really focus on their time, I guess, in Shams and and now we look back in nostalgia at Palestine and, and what they had there. But they they ruled they ruled so much of the land that today is now divided into different nations, but Egypt was also one of them, and and without going into too much detail on the Ottomans, because I think the Ottoman legacy is probably far more interesting if you if you look at and my particular mm -hmm. interest is is, is mm -hmm. the Hejaz region of you know Medina and Mecca. But the Ottomans eventually, because they were not Arab, they did have there was always resistance, but Ottomans tried and, and this is something that's recently been brought up is were Ottomans colonizers and the counter arguments are made that the Ottomans never really behaved like European um, colonizers. They didn't. They didn't ban languages. They didn't ban um, religion. They didn't ban really local rule. Ottomans believed in the sovereignty um, with the indigenous people, and this is how they maintained, if you like, their rule for so long. So although Egypt and and the Hejaz region and the Levant was Arab, the Ottomans were were able to keep power for so long because they understood tribes, they understood, um, I guess, alliances, and they managed it very, very um, brilliantly. But then the Ottomans themselves, unfortunately, lost out when the Europeans came in and they and they said, you know, these are, these are not even Arabs, they're ruling you, Arabs should be ruling the Arab lands, and then you, they, I guess, I guess they nourished and they and they fermented the seeds of Arab resistance, and I guess that comes into into modern times. But and then eventually the Ottomans were kicked out, right? So what happened? So then the French came, is that right? So we we cross over the Ottoman period right now. Maybe one one thing that I would like to say about it is that the Ottoman takeover of Egypt was a little bit aggressive, and it was partially because the Mamluks had established a sultanate and uh, it had stood in the way of the Ottomans. But the, the Ottoman takeover of Egypt, it was perceived in history by, by some of the historians of, of those times as one of the most terrible calamities that befell Egypt because Cairo was ruthlessly looted. The Ottoman soldiers took out the marble from the palaces in the citadel, uh, the homes of the rich, they even took it out from the mosques, and at the time the Ottoman Sultan was Selim, he even forcibly took hundreds of artisans to build uh, Istanbul, and whoever resisted this was beaten and taken 
forcibly again. So the entire class of artisans in Cairo would be missing, and they would only return to Cairo after the death of the Sultan, which is terrible. Which is interesting because I remember when we were walking around Cairo, we, I remember this one time we were talking about the minarets and I think we were standing in just south of the citadel and by the city of the dead, I guess there was a few mausoleums and we were looking at how amazing the minarets were. And then I think you mentioned how simple the Ottoman minarets are. If you look at the way the design is and not just the height, but just the design. Yeah. The brilliance of the of the Mamluk artisans and what they did with stone versus what the Ottomans achieved with marble, I guess with far more power and much more money and wealth, they could not achieve. And we're and we're comparing, I guess, subjectively here, but the just the minaret on its own as an example. Although you took the artisans into Istanbul, the style was completely different. But they could not recreate, in my opinion, and and maybe you would agree as an Egyptian, <laughs> they could not create the brilliance of what the Mamluks achieved in, in Cairo. Um, and this, this I don't understand why, but I guess we can look into styles and, and themes I, separately. I think but I see the, the Ottoman style is more imperialist, you know, it's more grand. The, the spaces are bigger, and the proportions much larger, everything is massive, and it, it speaks of power. Uh, the Mamluk is more delicate and intricate. It's rich with detail, and I like that part. I don't care so much for size if it doesn't have the, the beauty and the yeah. wonder that it, that this art creates. You know, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's that's a really good way of explaining it, because the imperial versus, I guess, I guess the, um, I guess the elegance and the love that you see in the Mamluk. So for anyone interested, you just have to look at some of the photos from Omar's. Um, Instagram travels and just look at the detail of the Mamluks created and if you've been to Istanbul you can then do a comparison and understand the Ottomans themselves were not um, they were not homegrown the, the artisans were bought from all over the Muslim world the Ottomans really did pick and choose and bring um, talent from all the way from India even into into Istanbul and as Omar just said they created their I guess their imperial city of um, Constantinople or Istanbul and and you can't really tell where the artisans came from because they had their own style okay so that's enough Ottoman uh, anti-Ottoman propaganda let's, okay. let's move on. we go to the French now the French came in the French Napoleon and and my from my reading of it Napoleon wanted Egypt as as all empires did once the once once the height of the golden age of Islam was over and the European powers were rising, there was this understanding that Egypt is more than Islam. Egypt goes back to the ancient times. It's it's a I guess it's it's almost like the the cradle of civilization. You have to go to Egypt and you have to conquer Egypt. So Napoleon spent a number of years studying um, Egypt and Cairo and the people, and and he planned that invasion. So what happened? So so Napoleon conquered Egypt. Okay, so Napoleon conquers Egypt. And this campaign that he leads in the country lasts only about three years, and it's a relatively brief period. But despite this short duration, it becomes very influential uh, to Europe as a whole, even. Because it's this time that it, it's really the first time for the Europeans to 
reach the Arab region and study it systematically. So this is important for two reasons. I'm not sure why I said two, it could be three, but four. But the reason it's interesting is because this was the start of Orientalist studies from the European perspective. Napoleon came with, with an army of academics and scientists to study the Arab, study the Orient in the East. So a lot of the Orientalist art that we see today popularized even owned by Muslims and, and we love to look at the, the romanticized idea of how the, uh, the Muslims lived. Most of that comes from the French period and I guess some from the British. But Napoleon kicked off as today as we know it as Orientalist studies to study and, and, and I guess narrate what the Orient was like and that was Cairo, right? Exactly. And Egyptology as well. And Napoleon, what I find interesting about his uh, occupation of Egypt was when he arrived, Napoleon had a speech and he told the Egyptians that he was Muslim and he believed in Allah and that Muhammad, peace be upon him, was his messenger and that he read the Quran. But he only said that to get their support because privately he would tell or the people around him he would he would tell them that he planned to modernize Egypt by rewriting the Quran. <laughs> you know one one thing I'll add and, and this is this is off topic for a second is if you growing up growing up as a Muslim in the West, um, you struggle for you struggle to understand your identity and to find pride in, in, in your roots. So what happens is you end up reading quotes by Napoleon about Islam you read quotes by Karl Marx about Islam, you read quotes by George Bernard Shaw about Islam, by Einstein and, and by Tolstoy, all European, you know, Europeans, and, and they have something positive to say. So I remember growing up thinking, this is beautiful. Even these geniuses, even, even the European think something good about Islam, but I always saw them as a benchmark and said, well, if Napoleon says something, then, then I must, then I must have the right. I must have something good about my faith or my or my people or my history. And I always, I, I only now as an adult understand a the motivation behind these commentaries by by these Orientalists, um, and how it should never really be a verification for you, for your own past. But it's it is the way it is. We we grew up in the in the world and their canon, and we needed to hear good things about our our faith and our history. Anyway, okay, so I'm, I'm very pleased that the French were only there for three years. Um, it shows the resilience of the, um, the Mamluk blood still in the heart, in, in, in the veins of the people. Unfortunately, something worse happened after that. Who came after the French? Well, Muhammad Ali was actually, he came back, uh, he came to Egypt after the French were... Um, ousted by the Ottoman-British alliance. So the, the Ottomans had allied with the British and then they ended Napoleon's short-lived campaign in Egypt. And then Muhammad Ali came. Okay, so I actually meant the British. Okay, so let's clarify. So Muhammad Ali Pasha wasn't a bad guy, so I meant the British. Okay, so Muhammad Ali Pasha well, was partially Ottoman. I guess he, was, he had Ottoman roots himself. Yeah, that's right. He's He's commonly known as the father of modern Egypt. You'll hear that a lot because he lays the foundation for the modern state. But 
there's something else that he's known for. And one day, he invites all the Mamluks to his palace in the citadel. This and is going to be good. There, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, um, he, he wants them to give their farewells to his son because his son is going off to Arabia to fight the Wahhabi movement. So the Mamluks stayed um, and they bid Muhammad Ali's son their farewell. And then they started making their way out of the citadel. And it was through a narrow corridor. But on the way out, the gate suddenly shuts. And soldiers appear from both sides of the corridor with rifles. And then a shot was fired in the air. And then for about six hours on end, Muhammad Ali's soldiers shot hundreds of the last remaining Mamluks until they killed every last one of them that was in the citadel. But again, this was not the end. Muhammad Ali sends his men to raid Cairo. So they stormed the Mamluks' homes and their neighbors' homes. And they continue plundering the city so heavily for days. And one of the historians during this time, he says, if Muhammad Ali Pasha had not ordered his soldiers to withdraw back to the citadel, they would have sacked the entire city of Cairo. So you can think of this as the inauguration of Muhammad Ali, because that's the way I see it. So this is, so for people who don't know, and Muhammad Ali Pasha, his that is his mosque that is sitting on the citadel, right? This is this is the the big mosque you see when you get to Cairo. It's it's on a hill, you can't avoid it. It's one of the places everybody goes um, on a on a tour of Cairo. Is that right? That's right. Okay, and it always looks like it belongs in Istanbul, mm-hmm. and if you go inside it, it does look entirely like an Ottoman mosque. Yeah. Wow. I mean, so that is you okay. can't miss it. So okay. So does it get worse? So, so what happens? Well, it doesn't get worse because he did a lot of good things for Egypt. But with the good things, we also have to look at the bad. So he, he, gives, he gives the country its first modern bureaucracy. He does that. And he reforms the state. Well, he actually establishes a state government. Because at the time of the Mamluks, you didn't have anything that resembled a coherent state government as we know it today. And Muhammad Ali also forms Egypt's first army with soldiers that are all Egyptian. And you didn't have that at any time, except in the ancient times. So the British is still present, and, and, and they have a big part to play too, right? Well, at this time, the British weren't an active force within Egypt. But Muhammad Ali Pasha used the Europeans, both French and British, as his consultants. But he was very wise to not let them um, lure him into taking loans or doing a, a kind of a very close business with them that would involve them funding it because he knew that there was a trap around there somewhere. And le- yeah, and later on, his his descendants would fall into this trap of taking loans from Europe. And when they would take so many loans from Europe, the state would gradually. Uh, become indebted to the European powers and then a revolt at the same time a revolt in Egypt would be brewing and this revolt along with the the government's bankruptcy they would burst at the same time and then the British would say 
this this is about 1882, the British would say, hey, uh, we need to step in to make sure that these loans are all paid and that this rebellion or this revolt is is quelled and everything is put back into order. So this is when the British come in, in 1882. If somebody was coming to Cairo now and they have a few days, so they see the pyramids, they see the bazaar, the Hano Halili, they see, they see the citadel of Muhammad Ali Pasha, yeah. but they want to see some of what we've seen. Where should they go and, and what should they expect to see? Would they still see, I mean, I, I already know the answer, but would they still see some of, of, of the world that we're talking about that is no longer around, but the buildings have left? Um, if someone comes into Cairo, I would suggest that, of course, they have to see the mosque of Ibn Tulun, and they have to see the mosque of Sultan Hassan, because it's one of the greatest Mamluk mosques um, that are in Cairo. In terms of size, of, of course, it's the most massive, um, but it's also much more than that. The, it's, it's just a beautiful mosque in every kind of way. It's doors, windows, it's portal, um, the way its lamps hang, its lanterns or lamps hang, uh, its mausoleum lavishly decorated. So Sultan Hassan is uh, a must-go uh, place. Uh, another one would be Al Mu'az Street, there, which is divided into the northern end and the southern end. So you may want to start from the southern end, from Babzuela, and work your way up to uh, Bab al-Futur. And on, on al Mais street, you see the finest examples of Mamluk architecture, because it was mostly uh, commissioned by the sultans or the highest-ranking emirs. So it's a very special place to be. And they had the best artisans working on these um, mosques or these madrasas at the time. And you see them, of course, from a lot of different eras, from the very early Mamluk, even some dating from the Fatimid. So the Mu'az street has Fatimid, Ayyubid, uh, Mamluk, late Mamluk, Ottoman, and late Ottoman uh, architecture. It's just a, a treasure on its own. So if you go there, maybe you'll need two days to explore the whole street, but it's a beauty. Perfect. Inshallah, I think we can end this podcast here and I and I want to leave this with with a quote by Ibn Battuta. He says, Cairo is a mother of cities and seat of Pharaoh, the tyrant, mistress of broad provinces and fruitful lands, boundless in multitude of buildings, peerless in beauty and splendor, the meeting place of comer and goer, the stopping place of feeble and strong. Her youth is ever new, in spite of the length of days, and the star of her horoscope does not move from the mansion of fortune. Her conquering capital has subdued the nations, and her kings have grasped the forelocks of both Arab and non-Arab. Thank you.